Let us return. Let us return to First Timothy this morning. So if you'll take your Bible or the Pew Bible in front of you and let us turn to First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three. In our text, verses 1 through 7, verse Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Verse 4, one who rules in his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good reputation among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Our Father in God, we pray for your blessing upon the word read and preached and our hearing of it. We pray for your spirit to lead us into the way of truth. We pray, Father, you would strengthen your people. We pray, Father, that you would continue and you might even use this word today to continue to raise up future leadership in the life of the church. And we pray, Father, for sinners, those that are apart from Christ. We pray that by your sovereign spirit, you would come near to them with the power of the gospel and you would save. Be with me as I speak. I pray, Father, for the help of your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We return uh, to this chapter that we, by way of introduction, entered into last week. Uh, we are looking at the qualification of, uh, of leadership, church leadership, in this chapter from verses 1. It actually goes all the way to verse 13. And if you remember, we looked at leadership concerning uh, last week those Two officers are offices of the overseer, the bishop, or elders, and then that of deacon. So again, by way of reminder, and if you're new with us, we are moving expositionally, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Apostle Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. And we have now have entered into this section concerning leadership. Now, it's interesting as we enter into this section, as we begin to consider it last week, we're reminded here, we're reminded here and throughout the scripture, how, how rightly and truly counterculture the, the nature of biblical and historical Christianity truly is. Christianity in North America very early on was uh, began to be birthed and shaped by a pragmatic uh, American can-do spirit. And unfortunately, what we are witnessing today is that has come to a, a, a head. We're seeing it all around us. And often the church, when it comes to her leadership, along with that pragmatic can-do spirit, the church's leadership is often defined and shaped by the culture surrounding it. But as we delve into the scriptures, what we find is that the church and her leadership, they're not flashy or attractive according to the standards of the world. The leadership of the church is not described as or it's not described as like CEOs or rock stars or charismatic leaders. But listen closely. The scriptures, the New Testament describes the leadership of the church as shepherds and servants. Now, the central thought here in this section 
is the qualifications of church leadership. Again, this morning, we will look at verses 1 through 7, that concerning what Paul calls here the overseers, bishops. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at verses 8 through 13, and we will look at the qualifications of deacon. The two lists of the qualifications that we find here, there is overlap with these two categories of men, but the focus is on, listen closely, spiritual integrity, virtue, or we might say at its peak, Christ-like character. Christ-like character of the men that are to be set apart to serve in the church. The two list, it's actually both lists, the two list revolve around. It seems that the primary word that's used that these the list will revolve around is the term blameless, or some of your Bibles will say beyond reproach. For the bishop or overseer, we see in verse 2, notice verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. And for the deacon, verse 10, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So the Apostle Paul is setting forth these qualifications of way of reminder to Timothy for the instruction of the Ephesian congregation and for all the future churches that were to come throughout this entire age. If you've been with us through this journey of uh, through 1 Timothy, you know that the, the Ephesian church was having difficulties with leadership. Uh, we, we looked at this over in Acts 20 some time ago. And we see it also in the pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, this is important because as we, as we continue through this letter, we will see the importance of qualifications in light of the moral and qualification failures of the leadership at Ephesus. And furthermore, the instructions on church leadership should be understood they should be understood as that which is understood as uh, known as proper church order. And so that which Paul has launched us into in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's not deviating. He's continuing on that same course. It revolves around what we see later in verse 14 and 15. Notice, set your eyes on 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, where he says, These things I write to you, Though I hope to come to you shortly, verse 15, but if I'm delayed, and here's the theme, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. This is in accordance with Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says, for this reason, he speaks there concerning Titus, and Titus is much like Timothy. He is an apostolic representative, an apostolic legate. He's left behind to carry out uh, the instructions of the apostle. And he says in, first, uh, or in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should, here's the language, set in order, set in order the things which are lacking. And what are they? To appoint elders, elders, plural, in every city as I have commanded you. And so what we're beginning to see here is that church leadership and the government of the church is not left up to grabs according to cultural well, uh, 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 cultural uh, desires uh, or, or this the what we can think of pragmatically as Americans or a people, but that the, the the qualifications for leadership and the government of the church are clearly established and set forth in the scriptures. And we find out that church leadership, we find what they are to be in the way of qualifications, and we find in Scripture what they are to do, that is, their work. Now again, 
the term that we find in verse 1. If a man desires the position of a bishop, now we first read that term, and you hear the term bishop in some of your Bible translations. We usually think about hierarchical type system that's found in uh, the Eastern uh, Orthodox tradition, in the Roman Catholic tradition, or even in the Anglican tradition, where there is a, a system of hierarchy for church leadership. But in the scriptures, we find that the word's not used that way at all. What we find in the scriptures is that the term, and again, if you have not heard this, you can go back and hear previous messages, that the term for bishop is literally the word that means to look over. It's overseer. Some of your Bible translations have it translated as that, overseer. Overseer and the term elder and the term pastor, all of these terms are different terms and names that describe those men that function in the government and leadership of a local church. Again, you can see this even in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. It is those two offices and those offices alone of overseer, elder, our pastor, same office, just different terms to describe it, and deacons. It's those two offices, and they are found within a local, visible congregation. Now, all these titles, as we began to mention last week, all these titles and metaphors like shepherd are used in the, used in the Bible to describe leadership. And the most fitting is that of shepherd, pastor. The eldership, the shepherds of Christ's church, are to think of it like this. They are to guard the flock from going astray. They are to lead the flock in green pastures of God's word. And the shepherds are to defend the flock against the savage wolves that would ravage them and attack them and plant false doctrine. The shepherd metaphor that is used by the apostle Peter and Paul are the best description of church leadership. They are shepherds. And if you remember, our main points last week was just as a way of introduction was to understand that the elders of the congregation, the elders, the pastors, the, the overseers, their primary responsibility is to lead and feed. They are to lead the flock, rule the flock, govern the flock is the language of the New Testament. And they are to feed and they, they feed through the teaching and the instruction of God's word and the administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And deacons, which we will begin to delve into that next week, the primary function of deacons, it is to serve. Now, again, there are areas of overlap as we begin to look at these character or moral qualities of these men. They will ultimately, they will ultimately point that leadership is to be marked by Christ-likeness. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the ultimate shepherd and servant for the people of God. And that all leadership is to be modeled after and to look to. Again, on the most basic level, the distinction between elders and deacons is that the elders feed and lead. They lead the local church. They, they teach the word of God while the deacons work alongside them to ensure that the elders are able to focus their primary attention on the ministry of the word, the administration of the ordinances and prayer and oversight of the church. All right. I want to begin in verse 1, and then in rapid fire, we have to move through, now don't grab your chest, 16 points. 16. So we will move with rapid fire. So let, let us launch into it. Beginning in verse 1, here we have this whole section we're calling the qualifications for elders. This is a faithful saying, he says in verse 1. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. The opening verse functions as a kind of introduction into this section. Paul begins with that familiar phrase that we've already seen back in chapter 1, verse 15, and he'll use this term. It's exclusively found in the pastoral epistles. It is, this is a faithful 
or some of your Bibles will say a trustworthy saying. This is true, he's saying. He says this uh, in chapter 1, verse 15. He says it here in chapter 3, verse 1. He'll use it again in chapter 4, verse 9. The, the expression is used to capture our attention. He's pointing out to Timothy, to the Ephesians, and to us that this is a vital and important point. This is a faithful, a trustworthy saying or statement. And what the apostle is about to set forth is to remind us of the qualifications of leadership and for the Ephesians it would highlight the failure, the failure of their elders, the ones that had strayed that we looked at previously. It would set that out. And so they were to begin to move toward establishing, setting things in order as a congregation, as a church. Again, the reality is, the reality is, is that a local church will typically stand or fall according to the standard of leadership. So it is important to get this right. So Paul, what is a faithful statement? What is a faithful saying, Paul? Verse 1, if a man desires the position of a bishop. He desires a good or noble work. Now, let me begin with this. This, uh, well, he's addressing the entire church. When he speaks of, if a man desires, it's in the masculine. So when he speaks of a person that desires the work, he's speaking of a man. It's in the masculine. In the previous chapter, we saw that the women of the church are not to be in the position of authority or teaching in the corporate gathering. They are to, you remember, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. He couples this with they are to walk among and live in the life of the church quietly, peaceably. They are to be modest in their apparel. He says, but they are to learn in silence with all submission. And verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. The point here is that the office that he's now speaking of is to be held by a man. And this becomes increasingly more evident as he begins to move through the qualifications of an elder. He is one, he is one, as we will see later, that the head of the household is, that this man is to rule it well. And he is to be the husband of one wife. And so it becomes very evident he's speaking of a man. And according to the clear teaching of Scripture, in the created order of male headship, men alone are to be the office holders in the church pertaining to elders and deacons. Just as a side note, let me say with a word of warning. We live in an egalitarian culture. Everything, everyone is pushing towards, there has to be a sameness I am now old enough, and many others of you, of you are also, we have witnessed what has taken place. Within the last 50 years, not only have females moved into the position of elder, deacon, and leadership of the church, but it is almost always to the case. There's a movement that will take place. The women will become deacons, then the women will become elders. And I'll just tell you what happens next. The next step is they ordain homosexuals. That's always the case. It moves into that, that, or, that is the steps. And so what we have here in scripture is that, let's be clear, there is a order, a created order. Paul made that clear in the second chapter of roles and functions of male and female, 
those two genders. Those are the two genders alone that the scripture recognizes. And the men are to lead in this office. But however, if the women are here going, well, so the women don't get to serve, but let me emphasize again, as I've said along the way, he doesn't allow all men to serve either. It's qualified men. And so there may be some of you this morning, there may be men among us, young and old, who are wondering, have I been called, as we might use that term, called to ministry? Have I been called to serve the church? And I would say this morning, if you're wrestling with that more than struggling with, am I called? And laboring with a kind of introspection of your heart and trying to figure out some mystical activity of the spirit. I would challenge you, though that's a good thought to have, to begin to back up and ask yourself, actually, am I qualified? Begin with the question, am I qualified? And then shift to, am I called? Okay? Now notice this. He noted, next noticed that he says that this man who desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. Notice that he says, he uses the word desire, that this man is to desire this position. Now, in the text that we use here, the NKJV, uh, you'll find that he uses the word desires twice in verse 1. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Some of your Bibles make it, it's, it's better rendered because it points out that there are two different words that are used here in the underlying Greek. It's better to understand that if a man aspires, if he aspires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So he, it's better to say the man aspires the position and he desires this good work, this noble labor. So there is an aspiring and a desiring now, let me explain that. What we mean by that, first of all, there should be evidences of grace in the man. Did you hear me? In the man that we as a congregation would set forth to serve on the council of elders, that there is to be evidences of grace in the man, a work of the Spirit of God. And part of the evidences of grace, of the activity of God in that man's life is one, he is to aspire in that he has an internal work of God that moves him. And the language that's found here is to reach for it, to grasp after it. Now, watch this. By the word that's used here, speaks of an external act to reach for it. It is to be driven not by selfish motives, not by pride, but by the gracious activity of God. That is to be the source of the, of the man taking this action. And so the second word, there's the word aspire. And the second word in verse one is desire. Now, this word speaks more of an inward compulsion, an inward compulsion. He desires the work and is willing. He's, he's not under compulsion or pressure to serve. There should not be an unwilling or half-hearted service. So there is an inward call, an inward compulsion, an inward desire that evidences itself by outward action. Am I making sense? You see what I'm saying? All right. The point is, no one is to lead God's people who does not desire to do so. Listen to the Apostle Peter explain this same thing, but in different terms. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort... I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock among you, which is among you, serving as, now notice the language here, serving as overseers, same word for bishop, serving as bishop, serving as overseers, and then here he goes, not by compulsion. 
not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Verse three, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, we know who that is, the Lord Jesus, as we talked about last week, ultimately the, the shepherds of the flock, the elders of the flock are under shepherds, under the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, whom they will give an account. When, when the chief shepherd appears, Peter says, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So, let's be clear here. While desiring to serve is a good starting point, it alone is not a sufficient qualification. There are other qualifications that must accompany this inward desire. There are moral and spiritual qualities. Not only, not only is there this inward call, but this inward call will be verified, accompanied by the outward call of the church. Did you hear? This inward desire, this inward call, this inward desire will be accompanied when it is authentic by the outward call of the visible church. We see this, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. And it's authenticated by, it is seen and witnessed by the congregation, by the council of elders, and it's affirmed by the laying on of hands. In 1 Timothy 4, 14, laying on the hands of the eldership, the presbytery of the, of the local assembly. Now, additionally, an individual may desire the work of an overseer, but we should consider that this sometimes does not spring forth from pure motives. Someone may desire the office out of desire for position, power, or even to compensate for personality weaknesses. But they are to be men that meet the qualifications that we're about to now walk through. There is to be an inward call and an outward call. Now, let's look at the list. Beginning the list, and we will move rapid fire through 16, 16 qualifications and if I was to describe these, these are spiritual qualities, but they speak of maturity and integrity. Think of them as godly character that are to mark the men that are set apart. Let us, let us begin. Verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless. There's the first one. He must be blameless. So as we speak of the qualifications of elders, the qualifications of overseers, the qualifications of pastors, again, all the different terms to explain the same office, the same men, he must, number one, be blameless. Blameless, or some of your Bibles will say, above reproach. And that appears to be the overarching quality. All the other qualities seem to flow from and fall under this. We, I would say that this is probably in light, this is being highlighted, especially because of the, the failures of the Ephesian eldership as overseers. Notice he uses this word, must be. He must be, must be blameless. Now, because, of, because there is a public nature to this office of elder, he must be blameless in the sense that there is, there's, there's no cause to think badly about him. Now, let me be clear about this. This doesn't mean he's sinless. If he has to be sinless, every man would be disqualified. But does, does the direction of his life does it fit into these qualifications that we see here? 
Not the full perfection of it, but the direction of it. And are these qualities seen and evidenced in his life? The man is, again, to live in such a way that he gives no cause for others to think badly of the church of the Christian faith. He's to be above scandal, above reproach. He must, again, verse 2, be blameless. And that verse 2, must be blameless, seems to be coupled with, as we will end this section, verse 7. He, he seems to couple it in between this. Verse 7, moreover, he must have a good testimony. Those seem to be bookends for the qualifications. Elders must be men that are and that continue to labor to be blameless. Now, John MacArthur, John MacArthur, one of the best books on pastoral ministry, you can find it through John MacArthur. John MacArthur writes concerning this very thing about to be blameless. And he says this, he gives four reasons why these men must be blameless or beyond reproach. MacArthur says this first, he says, they are the special targets of Satan and he will assert them. He will assault them with more severe temptation than others. Those on the front lines of the spiritual battle, he says, will bear the brunt of satanic opposition. Secondly, he says, their fall has a greater potential for harm. Satan knows that when a shepherd falls, the effect on the sheep is devastating. Third, leaders, greater knowledge of the truth and accountability to live it brings greater chastening when they sin. Four, elders' sins are more hypocritical than others because they preach against the very sins they commit. End quote. Wise words from Pastor MacArthur. Elders in the church, listen, pray for them. Hold them up in your prayers, constant and regular. Elders in the church need an abundance of God's grace and power because of their greater responsibility and visibility. Pray, pray for us. We covet your prayers. Second, secondly, second qualification. A bishop then must be blameless. And then the apostle says, the husband of one wife. Number two, the husband of one wife. The man serving as an elder, as a bishop, must be, that's literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Yes, yes, something like polygamy would disqualify him, but that's not the point here. The point is that he is committed to his marriage. He's committed to his wife. He's not a womanizer, a flirter with women. He is committed to his marriage, his wife, the promises and the vows that were made. He holds them firm and he is committed to her. The elder in his marriage is to reflect the love and the dedication of Christ to his church. You remember Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So if the elder, if the elder is married, he's to be a faithful husband. Now some may say, doesn't this verse mean the elder has to be married? No, it's not teaching that. If that was the case, then the chief elder, the Lord Jesus, couldn't even be your pastor. Or the apostle Paul. No, but if he's married, he is to be a one-woman man. He's dedicated to his wife. He's committed to his marriage. Thirdly, number three, he must be temperate. Notice verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate. Notice the language there, temperate. In fact, notice he strings these together. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. These next three, it says that they're all interrelated. He must be temperate, sober-minded, and of good behavior. B behavior. They're strung together. So the first one is, is that he must be temperate. This means that he is, he's able to be, a, he is to be a man of self-control. He's not given to excess, but moderate, well-balanced, and careful. He's not a man of rash 
actions and he's able to keep his temper in check. That's how he's to be known. Fourth, he says that he's not only temperate, but sober-minded. He must be sober-minded. That's number four. Some of your Bibles have this like alert or vigilant. That is, to be sober-minded is to be thoughtful, cautious. He's sober-minded in the sense that he sees the world. He understands his responsibilities and functions as an elder through the lenses of God's word. Five. Number five, he must be of good behavior. He must be of good behavior. The man chosen for eldership must be a man of good behavior, or some of your Bibles will say respectable. Again, these all seem to be closely related, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior. And that word good behavior, it has to do with, it's connected to the word like modesty for the women. It has to do with something that's well-ordered, well-ordered. When I reflected on those three areas there, what really pressed upon me is that you get a sense that this man is to be steady, cautious, slow to innovation. He likes to walk in the old paths. He likes to walk in the old paths. Number six, number six, he must be hospitable, hospitable. Again, verse two, an elder must be hospitable. This is, this is a compound word. It's two Greek words. It means to love strangers, to love strangers, to love strangers. This is, there, there's not really a modern day equivalent that's exactly like it. It's, it's, it's more than just entertaining friends. In the ancient world, it had to do with caring for traveling Christians in the ancient world. Caring for the widows, the orphans, the persecuted. Uh, William, Park, William Barclay wrote on this and he said, quote, In the Christian church, there were wandering teachers and preachers who needed hospitality. There were also many slaves with no homes of their own to whom it was a great privilege to have the right of entry to a Christian home. It was the greatest blessing that Christians should have Christian homes ever open to them in which they meet people like-minded to themselves. So his home is open. Yes, he will entertain friends. Yes, he will invite others into his home or be in their home but it is to care for those that are in need. It is the love of strangers. He's to be hospitable. In chapter 5, you'll see this is a marked quality of widows. Of widows. And in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verse 9, do not let a widow under 60 years of age be taken into the number, not unless she has been the wife of one man well reported for good works, verse 10, if she has brought up children, if she has, notice the language, lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Over in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, we find it again. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So he must be hospitable. Number seven, number seven, he must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. You see this in verse two. An elder must be able to teach. As I said last week, this does not mean that every elder is a silver, silver, uh, silver tongued preacher like Apollos. Or it doesn't mean he's a Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But it does mean that he's able to communicate the truth of God, to defend the truth of God. There is a grasp of the faith. There's an understanding of the system of apostolic doctrine. 
And you remember how the early church was devoted to that doctrine in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so there's a he is to be familiar with that system of doctrine as it's found in the scriptures. Now, this was foundational. And it would and this would come about in the life of a local church through the regular instruction of the word of God. And it is to be done primarily by the appointed eldership. They are the primary teachers of a local church. And again, while the main thought may not be the ease of which a man can can speak in front of a uh, in front of people or his particular ability to communicate the truth, the word of God to others. He is to speak the truth of God to others. He's to know that the system of doctrine, he's to help others grow in the knowledge of the truth. He's able to correct those in errors and he's able to defend the truth. Now, again, as you read through the pastoral letters of the new Testament, you get this sense. It comes up again and again and again. Uh, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. Able to teach. And notice verse 25. In humility, in humility correcting, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. So he's to have somewhat of those abilities. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, we find the same quality. He is to hold fast the faithful words as has been taught, and that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So again, by the ability and giftedness of men in the eldership will vary in such a way that it helps round out the eldership for the good of the church. Some men may be better administrators than others. Some men may be better counselors than others. Some men might be able to communicate better, but they must all be able to teach. Number eight, number eight. Verse 3. We made it to verse 3. Not given to wine. Not given to wine. Now, this falls in the same category as temperate. He must have self-control. In this particular qualification, the elder is not to be given or addicted to wine. The word, the word is, a, is a compound word with the idea of uh, of give or uh, beside the wine, he he's not a man who stands beside the wine barrel all the time. He's 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 describing that this is to be an individual who does not sit too long over his wine, drinking to excess where he becomes drunk. But the concern here is not whether. An overseer should practice total abstinence. But it's a matter of drunkenness or addiction. The same qualities found in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Verse 3. Verse 3. He must not be violent. He must not be violent. This is one of the points where D.A. Carson says, at times you read the qualifications of eldership or leadership in the church and they don't seem that high in some of your bibles it will say he's not to be a striker in other words do not assign someone do not put someone forward do not lay hands on someone who hits people that seems like a pretty low bar doesn't it for leadership but the idea he's not a violent man he's not a striker he doesn't use physical force to settle a disagreement as some of you've some of, some of you have uh, heard me say or tell the story of years ago, uh, a friend of mine in ministry was overseas. He was actually in the Soviet Union uh, after uh, things opened up in the Soviet Union. 
and uh, Scott was there ministering to some pastors there. Uh, they were behind the wall under communism, and now things had opened up, and so uh, um, training for those men had really opened up, and so he was there, and he said he was he was in a, in a small car. You know how they those small cars that they would have in, in Europe? They're all crammed in, like a little Yugo. Some of you don't know, even know what a Yugo is. Robert knows, right? They're crammed in it, and he said, it's all these pastors, and he says, you know, they're, you're fighting for life in traffic. And, and he says, at one point, the guy, the pastor driving, he's a big fellow. This other car pulls out in front of him, and they start yelling at them, and he's yelling at them, and he gets out of the car, and he's ready to fight them. And that was apparently part of their culture. And Scott pulls him aside and had to instruct him about, that's not how pastors are to do things. Even though that may be common here, you don't do that. And so he's not to be a violent man. He's not to be a striker. Uh, and as we see in a moment here, he's not to be quarrelsome. He is to labor to be a peaceable man, a peaceable man. But let's move on to number 10. We're making headway. Number 10, verse 3 He's nor given to, violent, to wine, nor violent, verse 3, not greedy for money. He must not be greedy for money, verse 3. So, and there's some, there's some, uh, some of your Bibles will read a little different here. There's some textual differences here. But some of your Bibles in verse 3 says not greedy for money. Some do not. Most will have some kind of note explaining the textual differences here. But the statement is in accord with Titus, the list in Titus. The qualifications in Titus and 1 Timothy, I mean 1 uh, Peter, 1 Peter 5.2. Uh, Titus says it this way in Titus 1.7. For a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, nor violent, nor greedy for money. Now, again, throughout the history of the church, there have been false shepherds who are charlatans. We see this in the modern-day TV evangelist, the health and wealth gospel movement in third world countries. This has become a problem, as it was in the early church. Men aspire the office of overseer for the sake of material wealth. They should be men, yes, they should be men that are wise and prudent with their money, but not greedy for money. He's to be content with God's provision. Number 11, number 11, verse 3, he must be gentle. He must be gentle. Next, he is to be gentle or peaceable. He should be, listen church, a gracious man, quick to forgive, reluctant to fight, sensitive to others. He's not to be mean-spirited. He should be inclined to tenderness. Now, I'm going to talk about fighting here before long. But he's to be gentle. Gentle. Think of our Lord Jesus. Think of our Lord Jesus. Now, after gentle, he says, not quarrelsome. He must not be quarrelsome. That's the twelfth one. He's not to be quarrelsome. He is reluctant to fight. He seeks and promotes unity and harmony rather than division. Doesn't mean he stands his ground, but it needs to be stood for. It doesn't mean he's not fighting the good fight. But he labors to seek and promote unity and harmony rather than division. Romans 12, 18. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The Apostle Paul will use the metaphor soldier concerning the ministry. And he, he'll write to Timothy this way in 2 Timothy, in fact, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And there is a battle. There's a battle that is to be fought for the Christian life and ministry. The fight against the world, the fight against the sin, against the devil. And to be sure, there is this battle in guarding the flock as a shepherd against false teachers and divisive men. 
Now, let me say concerning this. I have witnessed men through the years that disqualify themselves from leadership because they have a personality that moves them from one church war to the next. They seem to thrive on conflict in the church. At times, I wonder if they get an adrenaline rush from the conflict. They have a kind of pride in winning the next conflict. This, let me be clear, and this evidence itself, listen folks, this evidences itself on social media. Are you quarrelsome? This is a mark of immaturity, arrogance, pride. What I've noticed through the years, this kind of man has, has great difficulty distinguishing between primary cardinal doctrines, secondary doctrines, tertiary doctrines. To this kind of man, every disagreement is a heel to die on. And they're ready to divide the church over it. And they will divide it, they will divide it in their minds with great conviction. We have all met someone who it appears from conversation with them, they are in a conflict with every relationship around them. You attempt to strike up a conversation and you quickly find out that they're in conflict at every turn. How are things at work, family, friends, church? You go on. They're in a constant state of war in every conflict. That should raise a flag. 2 Timothy 2.23 But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Titus chapter 3, verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Verse 10, listen what he says here. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Listen what, listen what Calvin said about Titus chapter 3, verse 10. This is important. Calvin said, quote, We must now see what he means by the word heretic. There is a common and well-known distinction between a heretic and a schismatic. But here, in my opinion, Paul disregards that distinction. For by the term heretic, he describes not only those who cherish and defend an erroneous or perverse doctrine, but in general, all who do not yield assent to the sound doctrine which is laid down a little before. Thus, under the name, he includes all ambitious, unruly, contentious persons who lead away by sinful passions, disturb the peace of the church, and raise disputings. In short, every person who by his overwhelming pride breaks up the unity of the church is pronounced by Paul to be a heretic, end quote. And that is said by a reformer, by a reformer. Number 13, he's not to be covetous. Verse 3, he's not to be quarrelsome and not covetous. That is, an elder must not be covetous or a lover of money. And this is a, this is a compound word made up of love of silver, love of silver. The Bible does not say that money is evil. No, it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10. The same adjective appears in Hebrews 13.5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things that you have. So again, an overseer must not be greedy. He must be content in God's provision. 
14, verse 14. And these two next verses, verses 4 and 5, they're, they're linked together. They're the same thought. It is this. He must rule his house well. So we know he's a male. The term he uses for man is in the masculine. He must be the husband of one wife. That's a man. And now he must rule his house well. Verse 4. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Verse 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And what we're seeing here is that the home is the proving ground for service. He must have submissive children, not perfect, but well-disciplined. There should be a reverence in the household to the father and the mother should respect and they should submit to their parents. That is, the children should. There should be a clear example of household leadership coupled with an atmosphere of love. Much could be said on that. But verse 6 he must not be a novice. This is the 15th one. He must not be a novice. Verse 6, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. He should not be a novice or a new convert. A new believer given to much responsibility may swell with pride. It was the devil that fell from his high state because of pride. He should be a seasoned man and ever aware of the danger of sin and of pride. Lastly, verse 16, verse, or not verse 16, verse 6, but number 16, verse 7, verse 7, excuse me, verse 7, but number 16, he must have a good testimony among those outside the church. Moreover, verse 7, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. He must have a good testimony or reputation with outsiders. Now, the world is not setting the standards, so let's be clear about that. Jesus is the standard. But the elder should be a man that is known for decency and respect in the community. He is kind and helpful to others. They know that he loves his neighbor. He pays his debts on time. He's not in conflict with those outside the church. Uh, he's, he's not consumed with worldly things that are passing away. He has a good testimony with those that are outside the church. Um, there are 16. We're out of time here. And we want to move to the table but let me say this in closing. As we, as we, we year after year consider men that God would give us gifts from heaven, gifted men to serve as elders and deacons, as we consider men to serve in those places, let us remember, because we usually return here, when we set aside men or we begin to call upon the church to look around, do they see men that are qualified and they, would they submit those names to the elders? We return to passages like this and I read them or teach on them to remind the, call, the qualifications to the membership, to the church. But let us remember and let us pray that God would continue to raise up men to serve. Let us remember this spiritual calling, the giftedness, the character that is all required here. Let us remember that ability doesn't trump character or character trump the calling. We should not ask a man to be an elder or deacon just because he's a nice guy, because he's in a high position. He serves as the president of the bank or whatever. We desire to have men that are gifts from Christ. God called men. God gifted men. God transformed men. And secondly, let us be diligent and pray that in the way of the government of our church, we would be biblical. We would constantly be going back to the scriptures, aligning ourselves with the truth that is found here. Let us pray for the men who currently serve as elders and deacons in the church, that God would grant them the graces that is needed, that God would empower them, God would protect them as they serve. Pray that the Spirit, year after year, would give us discernment 
as a church body, as men are set aside and apart on a regular basis. Pray for the church. As we mentioned last week, the ultimate character and the one that we look to is the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. He is the ultimate one that we look to as shepherd and servant of the church. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we find for the even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus Christ purchased the church, the people of God, through the shedding of his blood. By his work on the cross, he paid the penalty that was due unto us for our sin and our guilt. Through his shed blood, our sins are washed away. And we are declared just in the sight of God because of the merits of Christ, Christ alone. He is the head of the church and he rules and reigns and governs the church by his word. Yes, through those men that he's called and gifted, but it is Christ through his almighty infallible word. He rules and reigns as king and head of the church. And so let us bend our knees to him. Let us submit to him. Let us listen to the elders of the church as week after week they instruct the word of God faithfully. And again, pray for them. If you're here this morning and you have not come to know Christ savingly, you've never embraced him by faith. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ by faith. Receive him as Lord, as master, as savior, as redeemer. The one who was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. You'll find in him, and him alone, is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and the hope and promise of eternal life. Turn to him and be saved. As we come to the table this morning, as God's covenant people, let us be reminded of this promise. Through the bread, his broken body, the life that was given. Through the cup and the wine, his shed blood, where he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Let us be reminded in the table of the promises of the new covenant of life eternal and that he remembers our sins no more. Let us pray.